Hello, and thank you for listening to this message from Pastor Gary Ellard here at Grace Bible Fellowship in Front Royal, Virginia. In this message, Carl Cacadellis of Grace Ministries unpacks Romans 5 to show the difference between being in Adam and being in Christ and explains that when we are born again, we are no longer under the law, but in God's grace. And that makes all the difference. Here's Carl with more. Well, good morning. <laughs> Gary mentioned uh, being a friend. It, it brought to my mind, we were talking about my dad yesterday a little bit, and, and my dad was a, a Marine Corps, in the Marine Corps in World War II and had quite the life, really. Uh, as a result of that, um, I think one of the takeaways my dad told me was from the Marine Corps is that the Marine Corps taught him that he could do anything. And, uh, and he really lifed that out in many ways. And, uh, and so it's interesting because, you know, he, being a Greek, uh, he would have identified as being a Greek until he joined the Marine Corps. And then they told him who he was. <laughs> he was Marine. And he held that as a, in, in honor for all of his life. And, uh, but at age 50, his identity went from being a Marine to a child of God. And, and it was awesome because through the years, as we would go visit them, um, either in Atlanta or down in, in North Carolina, you know, we'd bring our kids down there and we'd spend uh, days. It was always kind of hectic with our children and us having drive, you know, drove down there. But it seemed as though, especially in the last several years, my dad and I would always get just a couple minutes together. And he, uh, he was really consistent. It's like every time I got with him, he would pull me aside and uh, he would say, you know, Carl, and, and this, so let me just tell you, let me go back. So it, on my dad's 80th birthday, the, the town that he grew up in and had most of his work life in was Danbury, Connecticut. And the mayor there issued a proclamation on his 80th birthday, which happens to be February 14th. He was a Valentine's Day baby, just had his birthday. And... Um, and they issued this proclamation, and it listed all these accomplishments. My dad did not have a high school degree. He uh, ended up getting his GED after he was out of college or out of uh, the Marine Corps. But he went on to uh, get his GED. Uh, God uh, was, I don't know how this happened, but he was able to teach at the University of, University of Connecticut. He was in real estate. He was one of the original GRI uh, designates in the, in the, as a realtor. He went on to become uh, the, super, or the president of the Board of Education in my hometown. I mean, think about it. This guy who didn't have a high school education was the president. That's kind of scary, actually, right? And um, went on to teach at the University of Connecticut Real Estate, uh, became city treasurer in our hometown, uh, was a chaplain in the Marine Corps League, just had all, the, you know, they listed all these things in this proclamation. And so I say all that to say that when my dad being as accomplished and maybe even some might consider a self-made man, that whenever, when those times when he and I would get together on our visits, he would pull me aside and he would say, you know, Carl, there's only uh, three things that are important in your life. Your relationship with Jesus, 
your family, and your friends. And so I appreciated your calling me a friend, and uh, that's a great honor that you would do that, so, so thank you. It's, um, you know, a man's life is full when he has great friends, and so I'm so grateful for, for you also. I'm excited about the message uh, to, sh to share with you this morning. And in many ways, it's not going to be unlike many of the things that you've heard from Gary since he's been here, only it's not going to be in a West Virginian accent. <laughs> I know he does not have a West Virginia accent, but I want to give him a hard time. Um, we're going to look at the Book of Romans, and uh, part of that is we're going to focus in, and, and I'll go ahead and share. Oh, I've got my, I'm the guy here, right? So we're going to look at Romans uh, chapter 5 in verse uh, 17. And I've got it in a couple of versions here. Notice this is the King James Version. For if by the one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So that's the King James Version. I've got the, uh, I think I have the NLT here. This is what my pastor uses. He says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive. It will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Uh, the, uh, the problem I have is that I've read and memorized uh, the Bible, I haven't memorized the Bible, but the verses I've memorized or I'm familiar with are in the New American Standard. So you're going to be stuck with this verse in the New American Standard this morning. And it reads this way. It says, For if by the transgression of the one, remember that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. The thing I, I, I love about this verse is that it summarizes really the gospel in, in, in one verse. And as we sort of unpack that this morning, I invite you to turn to Romans. We're going to look at some other verses in Romans. But um, if, uh, if you're so led, I would encourage you to consider actually reading uh, maybe just the first eight chapters of Romans uh, sometime this week, is and, and from the standpoint of looking at it, that, that all right, it's great that I've got this one verse up here on a slide, um, but, but to read it in context, to consider the, the, the ideas that Paul's talking about in the broadest sense, uh, that, that we have an opportunity to really hear the gospel in its fullness as we read through those first eight chapters, especially in Romans. But we're going to use this summary verse to kind of launch from this morning. And uh, we'll start out with that first part where it says, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. So when we think about, when he's talking about the one here, he's talking about Adam. And the idea that all of us were born out of a, a spiritual relationship in Adam. And we talked a good bit about that yesterday. But in thinking about how God has unfolded his gospel to humanity, Really, uh, Israel is sort of the, the, the mini picture of how God is, has dealt with people. And we could look at how God has led um, the revealing of his gospel towards Israel. We can think about how God chooses Israel to reveal his heart to mankind. He sees Israel's problem before Israel sees it. And that's important because that's like you and me. It's like we don't even know 
we don't even know what to ask God for. God knows our problem way before we could ever imagine. Because what does Israel think their problem is? Well, they think it's Egypt. They think uh, if they could just get out of Egypt or uh, could be set free, that that would, that would rescue them. Uh, they're, all, they're all consumed with even Moses being their problem, manna being their problem, boredom being their problem. And it's not like un, unlike you and me. We think that we've got all these other problems that really are largely distractions to the problem because what, what's Israel's real problem? Well, their real problem is that they're separated from God. They're unrighteous. They're willful. They're self-determined. They're self-disciplined. And I'm, yes, I'm, I'm meaning that in a negative sense. That's, that's not a gift from God. Self-discipline is, is, is a way in which humans, apart from God, have attempted to try to self-improve. So it's not self-discipline. They're self-dependent. They're unrighteous. And so they don't even know what their problem is. So God initiates a plan to set Israel free, to rescue Israel. And so he leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And if Egypt was indeed Israel's problem, then all of Israel's problems should have gone away once they left Egypt. But that wasn't their problem. They still had difficulties. In fact, uh, God knew that Israel was now out of Egypt, but the problem was is that Egypt was not out of Israel. In other words, the way in which Israel had learned to operate and live and manage their life had been something that had grown very familiar to them. They, uh, they were in fact free, but they didn't know they were free, and therefore they didn't act free. I think uh, one of the things to maybe consider here is that people think their problem is one thing. For instance, people think even us as believers, we think that our primary problem is our behavior, whether or not we're behaving a certain way. And, and frankly, that is a problem. We even think about that when we think about our culture and the world today, that we think that uh, people, unbelievers, uh, uh, their main problem is their behavior. And so that's what sort of we preach to them, that uh, the CNN version of Christianity is sort of this idea that that all Christianity is is just trying to get people to conform to some Christian set of values. And unfortunately, that often is how we even attempt to govern our own lives. But what if, what if our behavior is not our primary problem? In fact, I think that really both we as believers and the world have an identity problem primarily with behavioral symptoms. In other words, we... We don't know who we are, and so we behave like people who don't know who we are. And we scramble around trying to figure out how to make life work, and, and we, we try to determine our own identities. We try to, we try to um, uh, make, make something of ourselves. We try to self-identify in our culture today. That's the newest thing that's out there is to self-identify. Um, but that's all as a result of this identity in Adam. So when he says, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, our problem is really that, that we were all born in Adam. That our problem was an identity problem that, that we need to recognize that identity is established by birth, not by how you perform. 
You can't behave yourself out of, out of an identity. So my last name, Cacadellis, is, is uh, the family that I was born into. And I, I think about growing up, in fact, uh, just even just talking about my dad, my dad ended up uh, running for state representative in Connecticut uh, as a Republican, which meant he didn't have a chance, and praise God he didn't win. That would have been a different life for us, probably. But he ran against one of my best friend's dads up at the top of our street. So I'll call them the Jones family. So the Jones family lived at the top of the street, and Mr. Jones was, uh, was a state representative. And can you imagine, uh, Sean and I had, uh, had our dads running against each other, and we were, you know, after school friends every day, playing sports together, playing basketball together. In fact, uh, our, our lives actually intersected in many ways. His, uh, his mom, uh, Mrs. Jones, was a high school tennis coach. And so I always uh, sort of envied Sean's life. You know how as a kid you think, man, if my life was only like this. And let me just tell you what the dream life for me was like when I was, what, 10 years old was Mrs. Jones, as a tennis coach, rarely cooked meals at home. I mean, my mom cooked meal, home-cooked meals every day. You know, meat, potatoes, fresh vegetables, you know, all that stuff. Boring, right? Mrs. Jones, probably, at least in my mind, this is, you know, as a 10-year-old, uh, she brought home McDonald's, food from McDonald's, at least three days a week. And I, in my mind's eye, I have memories of like a bag of French fries that was like a grocery bag of French fries that she would bring home for dinner. And I just thought, man, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, I got to go home to this boring food. So just think that if, if I, as a Cacadellus, decided, you know, kids could maybe think this is not true, but let's say that I got so um, excited about the Jones family that I decide I'm going to become a Jones. So I start practicing all of Joan, the Jones-like behavior. So I start hanging out at the Jones house. I start eating their McDonald's french fries. I do remember actually combing my hair like my friend Sean. Um, we, we, would, we would use that. Um, it wasn't dippity-doo, but it was like brill cream. Our, our hair was like rock hard you know, on our heads is in the second and third grade. And, um, and so I, I dress like a Jones, I wear my hair, I eat Jones food, I play basketball on the Jones's basketball court. And the other thing about the Joneses that I really liked is they could eat in any room of the house. Now, my house growing up, it wasn't quite as bad as having plastic furniture or plastic uh, coverings on the furniture, but it was borderline. It was like our dining room was a room we ate in twice a year, right? We always ate in the kitchen. So the dining room was almost like going to uh, Mount Vernon and having the little, uh, the little cord going across the entry of the rooms, and you just sort of peered in the dining room, and you thought, man, that's really cool. That's a nice place in there. I'm, you know, I wonder if we'll ever get to eat in there, you know? And, uh, but the Joneses, they could eat in any room in the house, and I just thought, man, it just doesn't get any better than that. So let's say I start dressing like a Jones. I'm eating in every room of the house like a Jones. And I'm doing everything the Joneses do. As good as I could get at performing like a Jones, for, for one minute, one second, would I ever cease being a Cacadellus? No. 
I mean, I could perform as great as any Jones. I could be right up there with the rest of the Joneses, keeping up with them. And, and I would never, because my identity was determined by my birth. I'm a cacodelus. And so that's what we see here with Adam. Adam's ide- the, the identity that, that every human received was a result of their birth in Adam. And so by the transgression of the one, death reigned, and so all of us were born spiritually dead as a result of being in Adam. Now, I want to talk about the much more that's, uh, that Paul uses in that two-word phrase there in, uh, in verse 17, but I want to hold on to that just for a second. I want to talk about um, the abundance of grace, okay? So the abundance of grace is this idea of... Um, that really is foreign to us. This concept of grace is something that's not easily defined. It, it almost refuses to be described. <laughs> um, that vocabulary is ina- inadequate to describe it. And that, in fact, grace, I think, really is only something that you and I can, can experience and, and really can only experience it in the context of relationship. So we can use words to describe it, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense or other vocabulary that we might try to do it, but it's only really realized in the context of relationship. So what if we were to try to describe someone's character, in this case, God's character? Because grace really is God's character or, or his heart being expressed towards you and me. It's his it's his wisdom. I'll tell you one thing about that, that practically has made a difference for me in my walk with Jesus is that I have begun to learn to depend on God in a way that has really begun to set me free in, in an ongoing way. And it's this. It's like I, um, I grew up kind of really trying to figure out how to solve problems. Like stuff would come into my head and I would try to figure out how do I try to make sure that that doesn't happen or that that doesn't happen again, especially if it was painful, right? Or I would try to figure out how I could make something better so that it, so that it would be acceptable or I could, be, I could be seen as better. And so I was busy trying to solve problems or figure things out. And, but what if, what if God's character being expressed towards me is his wisdom. In other words, what if God were to be the one that I could depend on to figure things out? In essence, if God were to be the one that I look to and I could learn to depend on to figure things out, then I wouldn't have to try to figure things out. I could just depend on him. And his wisdom would be my wisdom in the moment. Now, I'm not saying I throw my brain out the window. Or that God hasn't included my brain and how and, and my mind and how he reveals things to me. But I'm talking about the responsibility to attempt to try to problem solve and fix myself and other people. What if that were God's job? And I could begin to depend on him for that. Then I could begin to know his grace, his wisdom expressed towards me in a in a dynamic, ongoing way, sort of online, in the moment for me, as the future becomes the present in each and every moment. So it's his wisdom, his love, his provision, his strength, his protection. 
Grace is, is, is not just a how to do something, but that it might better be described in terms of a who. That grace is a person. It's God's heart. It's his character being revealed and expressed towards us in the context of relationship. I like where Paul in Romans chapter 7, in fact, if you're there in, in Romans chapter 7, um, that if you look there, uh, there's a couple verses. He repeats himself uh, in Romans 7. I think it's verse 15 is one of them. He says, for that, and, and you'll, know, you'll know this, right? For that which I'm doing, Paul's saying about himself, for that which I'm doing, I don't understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. And in the Greek language, you know, written down, they didn't have the ability to bold or italicize or underline. So he just said it again. Yeah, I think it's verse 19. He says, the good, for the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I mean, for the longest time as a believer, those were like my life verses. I, I mean, they were, in, in a strange way, they were encouraging to me because I felt like I could identify with that struggle in a way that I, I didn't really identify in anywhere else in the Bible. I mean, it seemed like everybody else kind of knew what they were doing, and I was the only one who couldn't figure this out. And I couldn't. I couldn't figure it out. And so whenever we can't figure out something, we always look to how, you know, or what? So you'd, you'd, you'd go to somebody, you'd ask them, well, how do I do that? Or what, am I need, what do I need to do? And what I love in, in, in uh, chapter 7 there in verse 24 is where Paul uh, exclaims the answer to what otherwise might be a what or a how. And he says it this way. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You see, the answer is not a what or a how, it's a who. God doesn't tell us what to do. He gives, him a, he gives us a person. He gives us himself. And so grace is the expression of this life, God being himself toward you and me. So when we think about God being himself, have you ever considered the fact, and I know it might sound a little silly, that God is not like any other person you've ever met? You might be thinking, well, of course he's not. But, but yes, of course he's not, but the difficulty with that is, is that we kind of relate to God as if he's just like some other person that we've met in our lifetime. So we don't know how to relate to a God who has character like his. Like, for instance, I don't know how to relate to a God who, who loves me unconditionally, who, who is not frustrated with me, who's not put out by me who's not had enough of me. <laughs> I mean, right? How many times have you just thought that certainly God must have, have be, just be done with me? But he's not like any other person. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, you know, that, that familiar passage where he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That, that Hebrew word for holy there is, is Isaiah express, expressing God's uniqueness. He says, God, you are unique. You're unique. You're like no other. In that you're not like any other person I've ever met. And I, I don't know how to relate to you because you're not like any other person that I've ever met. He's like no other. 
Part of it maybe is, is because I, I'm used to having people react to me. I'm used to reacting to people. And God just continues to be himself towards me. God acts. He doesn't react. He's himself. He doesn't just react on a whim to being frustrated by me. So grace is, is seen and evidenced in our relationship with him in a number of ways. It's, it's God's expression of total forgiveness towards us. It's his loving us without condition, his loving kindness, the Hebrew says. I wish I could, I could sing the song, his loving kindness is everlasting. You know, that, that expression that Jews would use, that was uh, the hased, the, this idea that God's love is everlasting, almost unknowable. God expresses and we see evidence of his heart in his creation. I mean, I mean, just driving out here today, we, we see his hand. It's, it's amazing, I mean, for any of us to just ignore the fact that God's love and his expression of his love is just so amazing towards us and that he gives perfect gifts. He gives us himself. He gives us friends. <laughs> gives us one another. He gives perfect gifts. He gives us gifts before we even know what to ask for. So grace, grace is not just a perfunctory prayer that you and I might say before a meal or a word to describe a gifted ballroom dancer. She has grace. It's not a, it's not a way to handle a difficult situation with a good attitude, although we might refer to it as being gracious. It's not going easy on someone. Grace is, is not just letting people get by with something. That's not, that's not this expression of grace. In fact, it's not only the gift of salvation being offered through Jesus' finished work on the cross. However, it certainly includes his finished work on the cross as full and final payment for our sins. In fact, when Paul writes about God's forgiveness, he's talking about um, his grace. So if we go to uh, 5.17 again, that he says the abundance of grace, that it's uh, grace and, and forgiveness, this idea of forgiveness that God has given this, the gift of his abundance of grace, which is an expression of, of his forgiveness towards us, that this forgiveness sounds outrageous. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn to verses 18 in Romans chapter 5 and following right after this. Paul writes this in verses 18, 19, and 20. He says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And what I want to focus in on here is verse 20. He says, listen, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. That's weird. You would think that the law would come in to straighten people out. But actually, all the law did is reveal what failures Israel was. And let's not pick on Israel. All the law does is the same thing to you and me. It shows us that we're failures, right? So instead of Israel's response to the Ten Commands, um, you know, really 
maybe in retrospect, a correct response to the Ten Commandments from Israel would have been, you know, Moses shows up with the tablets, they, they read the tablets. Really, Israel should have responded by falling on their knees in, in utter um, uh, inability to ever hope to be able to meet the criteria of God's commands. But instead... Their reaction is the verse that you probably have hanging somewhere in your home. You got it as a housewarming gift. It's, it's uh, what is it? It's, um, uh, no, it's not Jeremiah. It's, uh, it's right after uh, they come out of Egypt and, and uh, uh, the, the verse says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's the verse? Is it Joshua? Joshua 9, I think. As for me and my, so Israel's response to the Ten Commandments is like, great, like you're telling us how to do this, so now we'll go do that. I mean, sincere, maybe, like you and me. You know, I read the Bible, it's like, this is what I'm supposed to do, and so I'm sincere in trying to do that, when in fact, the law is simply there to expose our inability to meet God's standards and to live. A righteous life. So Paul says in verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase because look what he goes on to say, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So bear with me for a second. This basically what Paul's doing here is he's, he's, he's revealing the fact that God's forgiveness is scandalous. It's outrageous. So if, if you'd imagine it this way, let's say that if, um, if grace were to equal, uh, well, hang on, if sin were to equal one step back, right? So here I am, uh, sin would take me one step back, that grace would be all the more. Let's say that it, it more than gets me back to here, it actually is all the more, it abounds, right? So, so sinning is one step back, another dose of grace would be two steps forward. So think about that. After having sinned once, I'm better off than where I was when I started. And then if I were to sin again, I'm back to here, and grace says I'm two steps forward. I mean, that's crazy talk, right? It's like, how could God's forgiveness be so outrageous that God would ever forgive our sins once and for all, in essence, revealing the fact that you and I cannot out-sin God's grace. That's scandalous. I mean, it's like, okay, you're thinking, really, he just said that? Like, wait a minute. But that's exactly what Paul's saying here. And he's, he's saying it, uh, that for every step backward, God's going to give us two steps forward in our relationship with him. Grace abounds. All the more. In fact, there's a famous preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said it this way. In his commentary on Romans, he said this. He says, listen, he says, there's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. And then he goes on to say, listen, he says, if my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it's not the gospel. 
In other words, if people don't hear me saying that that's outrageous, then they don't understand the grace of God. It is outrageous. And in fact, Paul's begging the question here when he says, if we go back to verse 17, if, when he says much more, because, because in the, uh, when, when I remember Malcolm Smith talking, about, uh, talking to Africans about the gospel in Africa, and one of the witch doctors that he was witnessing to, when he understood the grace of God, all this man could say is that it's plenty too much. Plenty too much. Much more. It abounds. It's more than what you could ever use up. It overflows. You cannot outsin God's forgiveness. And, and hopefully that if, our, if a gospel is preached, that it would expose people to the possible misunderstanding that, they, that their behavior doesn't matter. Because unless you come to that point, you're not going to fully realize the extent of God's forgiveness. So that brings us a concern, right? So now basically you're saying that because of the finished work of Messiah and, and that God's forgiveness is much more than I, I could ever need, in other words, I can't outsin God's grace, that his forgiveness abounds all the more, then what's going to stop me from sinning? In fact, uh, I think Paul knew what he was doing here. In Romans chapter 6, he, uh, he clearly is begging this question. In Romans 6, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Remember, verse 17 here and verse 20, basically talking about God's forgiveness, is right at the end of Romans chapter 5. And so here he's explaining God's outrageous, scandalous forgiveness the abundance of grace, and he begs the question, which people should be thinking, are you saying that, that I, I, I should be sinning all the more so that grace would increase? And of course, we don't know how to answer that. It's like, wait a minute, so what are we saying? So what do we do? Well, we try to, we try to balance grace. In fact, uh, we, we misuse um, a verse that talks about, you know, that Jesus, that Moses uh, uh, brought the law, but grace, uh, Jesus brought grace and truth. And so a lot of people, which I love in John, where it says that, where, you know, uh, Moses was uh, revealed the law to us, but Jesus revealed grace and truth, that some people have taken that verse and to, and to suggest that truth is, is uh, like using the law. In other words, the way to balance grace is with the law. Like, you don't want to have too much grace because people will go over the edge. Well, in John there, he's not saying that it's balanced by law. He says the law came through Moses, but it's balanced through grace and truth. Truth is not an extension of the law that we need to tell people what to do. So you got you to gotta have grace, but not too much because we need to make sure that people stay in line. But in fact... God's balance to grace is a new identity. You see, what God did is he not only totally and completely has forgiven you, but he's given you and me a brand new heart. Right? He's, 
he's, he's changed what our, our want-tos are. He's given us a brand new set of desires along with his life in us. And so, so now I don't want to live according to the flesh. I, I don't want to sin. Not to say I don't sin or that I aren't, I'm not deceived and actually willfully choose to sin at times. But that's not who I am. I've got a new heart. If you're a believer here today, you want what God wants as it relates to living a godly life. That's part of why you're here is because you're in the same struggle I am, learning how to depend on God in an ongoing way. So grace is a, is a foreign concept. In fact, this whole idea of being under grace is, is if you kind of thought of it like an operating system, like a computer operating system. Um, it's foreign to us, like, like the, the uh, DOS or Windows is a foreign operating system to me. I'm a Mac Apple guy. So I, you sit me in front of a, a PC and I'm done, right? I, I'm, I'm dead in the water. And so that operating system is foreign to me. Well, grace is a foreign operating system. I don't know how to operate in the context of grace. I, I don't know how the system works, how relationship, excuse me, I don't know how relationship is established and maintained under grace. Because we're much more familiar with a different operating system. In fact, we're familiar, way familiar, with what it means to live under the law. You know, basically saying, what do, what, what do I expect? Well, I expect to get my ducks in a row, check all the boxes, make all the right decisions, maintain, maintain control over my circumstances, to maintain control over certain unruly people, including myself, and to manage relationships so that I don't get hurt and so on. This system, that, this, uh, this, this under law system is what I would like for you maybe to consider calling the achieving system. In other words, if we perform well, we'll become good people. Identity isn't by birth, it's how I perform. So if I can just perform better, then I can become a better person. It's this achieving system where we, we worship productivity. So show the picture of Jesus uh, standing at the UN. I love this. Uh, this so some of you, has anybody seen this picture before? If you're my age, probably you've seen it. Um, it was very popular in the 70s. People would have it. Uh, they sold it in Christian bookstores. And, uh, but I'm going to make a T-shirt out of this picture. And it actually wasn't my idea. I saw it somewhere. But I'm going to start making T-shirts. I saw a poster, but I'm going to make T-shirts with this picture. And the caption's going to say, Jesus is coming. Quick, everybody look busy. Right? Look at the picture. Quick, every, Jesus is coming. Quick, everybody look busy. We're so performance-oriented. I mean, it's, it's a joke now to me, but I remember when I was younger, I would, I would, when I answered the phone, like at any time of day, if I was taking a nap, I would never want anybody to know that I was sleeping. Like, like sleeping was a sin. Like I wasn't doing something. So you caught me not doing something. And so I'd wake, you know, I'd, I'd answer the phone. If I was dead asleep, I'd wake up, or I'd, I'd wake up, and I would sound like I'd been awake forever, you know, like, hey, hey, yeah, I'm fine. It's like, you wouldn't catch me sleeping. I never sleep. <laughs> naps are from God, I'm telling you. Any time of day, naps are from God. 
But that's foreign to us. We, we've come to worship productivity, and many of us as Christians have become behavior addicts, primarily interested in making the best decisions, gaining or maintaining control, staying safe, protecting ourselves. We're busy trying, trying to perform for God so that he's not displeased. I mean, when you think of all of what God's done for me, the least I can do is my best for him. And as noble as that sounds, it's not the gospel. Grace is a foreign operating system. We're not used to it. Grace, if, if under laws an achieving system, how about this? We'll call grace a receiving system. A receiving system. These two systems are, are, uh, don't function on the same platform. It's a, so I'm old enough also to remember back in the, when Jimmy Carter was president, what, 1975. We almost, for those of you younger... We actually were this close to changing over to the metric system. Do you all remember that? There was a, a major effort to try to move from, from the, uh, the uh, standard or imperial measurement system to the metric system. And I guess people were so outraged by that that they find. And so now what? We're stuck with a hybrid. Now you got to buy two socket sets, right? It's crazy. We didn't switch. And actually, the metric system is superior. It really is, but don't, don't, say, don't, don't put that on the, on the tape because I don't want anybody to find out that, that that's the case. But those two systems are, are different than each other. And you know if you've tried to use the wrong socket on, on a metric uh, nut, right? You're going to have problems. These two systems, Mac, Windows, uh, iOS versus Android, the system we know is very different than what I'm calling God's operating system, this, this grace operating system, this receiving system, is, is weird or strange for us. His problem is, is that humans are born into a system of, of existence that's void of God, and we're slaves to that achieving system. It's a system that measures value and worth by how well a person performs. And we're all enslaved to that system. It says that you're okay and acceptable when you do or don't do certain things. And so what God does is he uses this system to show humans that they can't live up to the very system that they're trying to employ. It's brilliant. God uses the law to confound people who are under the law, to, to reveal to us our inability to have life apart from him. So if you're struggling in that system, that achieving system, praise God. <laughs> you were never meant to live under it. In fact, what, what's going to be really foreign for us is, is for us to begin to live under this receiving system. Romans 6 verse 14 says this, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Sin's not your master. In other words, part of the reason why you're in this treadmill of trying hard and giving up is because you've never realized that there's a whole other operating system that God lives according to, and because you're trying to live under a law operating system in a grace platform, you're failing. It's like God is playing football and you're playing soccer. God's trying to hand it to you, and you're trying to kick it 
along the ground. It doesn't work that way. There's a whole other way in which God operates that's foreign to you and me. So law-based thinking will not work in a grace-based relationship. It's like, it's like, um, suggest, like my children coming down in the morning when they were babies for breakfast, and uh, they sit down and they, they have a bowl of cereal, and after they're done, they lay uh, $5 on the table because that's how things roll under an achieving system. That's not an idea for parenting, or maybe it is an idea for parenting. I don't know. But no, you're in a relationship with your child where they don't pay for breakfast, right? But it's weird. it would be weird. What if all you knew is that, of course you pay for breakfast. So uh, law-based thinking won't work under a grace-based relationship. But we grow up thinking, it's up to me, I'm on my own, I need to figure this out. I have to prove myself, make something of myself. If I try harder, I can do this. I need to try harder. If I feel really bad about it enough, I will try even harder the next time. That's using quote-unquote godly sorrow as a redoubling of your flesh's efforts to try to do better the next time. I mean, really, how is that going? Does that work for you? Because it's never worked for any person I've ever met. You're all repeat offenders. You're not promise keepers. Who's kidding? Let's not kid each other. I, I decided I'm going to start a, a new organization called the Promise Breakers. I'll get a lot of people who will want to join up because they can identify. You know, I'm a, I'm a promise breaker. Okay. I'll, but the problem is, is they, they'll say they're going to come to the meetings and then they don't show up because they're promise breakers, say. There is only one promise keeper, and there only needs to be one promise keeper because this whole relationship is based on him. It's not a handshake between God and my best efforts, me making promises to God. It's a handshake between God and himself, and that relationship is the relationship that you and I enter into as a result of the new covenant. And the whole system works on a grace-operating system that can only be received and can never be achieved. So we see in Romans 5.17, it's, it's this crazy forgiveness, the the abundance of grace, the plenty too much of God's forgiveness, not balanced with law, but balanced with a new identity. That is the gift of righteousness. You see that there? He says, much more those who receive both the abundance of grace and secondly, the gift of righteousness, a gift of a new identity. It's this idea of God giving us a new heart and, the, and God giving us a new heart was not a new idea to God. He knew all along that we were going to need new hearts. It's just that we had to catch up to begin to realize that, and, and become frustrated in our own abilities to try to make life work out of our flesh before we would even know that we needed a solution. As a, I didn't need new behavior. I didn't need a new set of rules or any set of rules that I could hope to follow. I needed new DNA. I needed a new spiritual life in me. And it wasn't a new idea. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet says, 
talking about the new covenant, he says, I will, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll, in other words, I'll forgive you and your filth will be washed away and we, you will no longer worship idols. And then he goes on to say, and I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll take away your stony, stubborn heart and I'll give you a tender, responsive heart, a new heart, and I'll put my spirit within you. So the balance to God's outrageous forgiveness is a brand new heart. It's a brand new person on the inside. His very life living and dwelling in you and me. It's his a spiritual DNA coursing through my body, through your body as a new creation in Christ. No longer subject to the old achieving system. So what is grace do? Well, it, this little formula, if you, kinda, if you can kind of picture this, I didn't put it on a slide, but sort of picture this mathematically. It's like you've got the abundance of grace plus the gift of righteousness. It, it's both. Because if you have the abundance of grace and you don't have a new identity, then you have a license to sin. You see that? If you, have the, if you have God's outrageous forgiveness, but you don't have a new identity, then you've got license to sin. So what God does is he gives you the abundance of grace and a, a new heart, and, and that, that grace plus righteousness is this ability to rule and reign in life. In other words, reigning in life is living in a boldness and a confidence and a freedom that is unprecedented that you and I could begin to live as, as free men and women. That we are. That Jesus bought and paid for. That we would stand firm in the reality of, of this new life in Him. That we would reign in life, not just exist, waiting for Jesus to come back, warehoused in, a, in some sort of miserable existence between trying hard and giving up. But no, living in a boldness and a confidence and a freedom because of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So I hope all this sounds too good to be true because the good news is that it is true. And the hard part is not maybe even just mentally ascending to what, what he talks about in Romans 5.17. I, I actually think the hardest part is the word that I've highlighted in yellow. Because I think the problem for most of us is our receivers are busted. I got a busted receiver. I don't know, I'm not, I don't know how to receive. I don't know what it looks like to really receive. I think for me it includes sort of the shield that I've cobbled together my entire life. You know, if you don't know this, I think people in West Virginia know this. If you get enough duct tape and enough plastic knives and enough zip ties, you can build anything. And that's what I did. I built a shield out of plastic knives, duct tape, and zip ties. And I carried it around my entire life trying to figure out how I could manage and, and monitor relationships. And, and that shield was, 
was uh, it, it, the problem with that shield is it kind of worked for me. Now, in my shield, it had one corner of it that was blown out, that had been destroyed through some battle at some point. But, but I even knew that that was there. So I would even know how to use the shield to incorporate the fact that that corner of the shield was blown away. And I lived with that shield. So the hardest part for me to receive was that God says, in order for you to receive, you need to let me be your shield. In fact, in order for me to be your shield, you need to put down that shield. And that was crazy talk to me. I mean, I can't put down. That's the only shield I've got. And I'm not too sure about you. So receiving is the hardest thing for you and me to say, God, I, I'm willing for you to work in my life in a way that I've only made a poor attempts at. I want to close with this story. My, my brother, my brother Tom, my one and only brother, back several years ago, had the opportunity to uh, travel on one of the, I think it's one of the three most famous pilgrimages. It was the uh, Camino del Santiago, the Way of St. James. It's in Spain. It's, I don't know how many hundreds of miles it is, but he walked 100 miles. Now, you might think, oh, that had to be tough. But no, he ended up connecting with some rich guy. I don't know how he met this guy, right? But he met this person in Charlotte. They ended up taking a, a private plane to Spain with a group of about 12 people. And they walked the Camino del Santiago. And this walk involved basically starting out each morning after having slept at a castle, bed and breakfast, right? With, uh, with a, a full outrageous you know, breakfast every morning. Then they travel on the on the uh, on the Camino. They they they'd be walk for however many miles, and then they meet at this location. Well, they had no kidding, they had a personal chef who followed them. It was like what we would call a sag wagon on a on a bike trip. So I've done bike trips before, and so this you know the the the, the vehicle that runs ahead of you and then gives you water or refills your water bottle or Gatorade or whatever gives you. A, Gives you a cliff bar, you know, which is sort of like deer droppings in a wrapper, you know. Um, I, you know, that's what I'm, I'm thinking. No, they actually had this chef drive up ahead of them, and they would meet at a predetermined uh, location, and there was a spread. There was, there were f fresh fruit, sliced cheese, few specialty meats cut up out there on a tablecloth with wine, right? They had seating there. So there, there they are on this trail where, so if you, I don't know, I've never walked the, the Appalachian Trail, but I, I have images. I know of hiking. I've done a lot of hiking. And I know that when you're hiking, you're, you're like carrying like Slim Jims as your, as your nutrition, right? And, may, and, you're, and you're, you're already coveting your buddy's water because you're hoping for some water maybe once you get to the end that you can sip on. And so this is what happened. They were on this trail enjoying this incredible spread. And there were other, of course, other travelers along the Camino, people who were like legitimately hiking this thing. And they would invite people. They would say, hey, listen, because they had like all this food. It was ridiculous. It was like, it was, if you turn the corner, can you imagine these, these uh, hikers and they turn the corner and it's like an oasis of food. I haven't seen food and I don't know how long. I got a Slim Jim. 
And they would invite people. My brother said, no one, not one person took him up on it. Now, I don't know what that's about. But to me, what that, that really is a picture to me of the gospel. It's like there's this oasis. It's this, there's this gift that, that God is offering to you today, to me, today in this moment. And, and, and the idea of, of not grabbing my Slim Jim is, 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 a, is logical. You know, it's like... Maybe our receivers have just atrophied. But maybe today is just good timing. Maybe today is the day to begin what is a different relationship in terms of like, like beginning to walk. It's, it's unfamiliar. This, this grace operating system, this receiving system is going to feel really strange than the achieving system. But maybe you could begin today. The scary part is going to be putting down your shield because you don't know what that's like. But what if God really is who he says he is and he's enough for you? That you don't have to make up life on your own. You don't have to figure it all out. That he can be wisdom for you. He can be provision for you. He can be the source of, of everything pertaining to life and godliness for you. His heart is utterly pure towards you. And all you do is simply receive. So, if your mother taught you right, if you receive a gift, you simply say, thank you. Thank you is a, thank you is a verbal expression of an attitude of reception. Saying thank you is basically a way of verbally acknowledging that you've received. So I invite you, here on your own, just where you sit, to join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible gift. Your outrageous forgiveness. This whole new operating system, that we really are in the world, but not of it. We're in the matrix, but not of the matrix. That we're created new to live as new creations in a receiving system, a grace operating system. Father, all we can do is say thank you. So if you're here today, I invite you just to whisper to yourself, if you're ready to receive, just whisper it to yourself, out loud enough so you can hear yourself. Simply say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this message from Grace Bible Fellowship in Front Royal, Virginia. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.gracebiblefellowshipchurch.org.